1: You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined digitally by Mark Galley. Hey, Mark.
2: Hey, it's good not to be with you today, meaning I'm home sick with the flu, but but recovering enough to uh, participate in the podcast. So that's a good thing.
1: I know you didn't leave me stranded here like I had feared.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm not quite as courageous as you. I, I seem to recall you coming in and doing the podcast when you, had, you were sick once. So You're I,
1: right. It would have taken an amount of courage for me to let you to do it alone. It's true.
2: There you, there you go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so who is joining us today?
2: Joining us today is Amy Simpson. She's an author, speaker, and life and leadership coach. She's the author of Troubled Minds, Mental Illness, and the Church's Mission, and most recently, Blessed are the Unsatisfied, Finding Spiritual Freedom in an Imperfect World. She's written for some very prestigious outlets over the years, including Christianity Today, and many of her most memorable articles are on her wrestling with the issue of mental illness and the Christian faith. So I'm really glad she's on our show today. Welcome, Amy.
3: Thanks a lot. It's good to kind of be here with you, too, (laughs) not in in the physical space, but uh, virtually.
1: Awesome. We're really glad you're here, Amy, as well. All right, let's get into our discussion for the day. Last Friday, the Evangelical Women's Conference, the IF Gathering, drew criticism for comments about mental health. Some criticized speaker Rebecca Lyons, who, in telling about her daughter's anxiety attacks, suggested that mental illness could be healed through prayer. Lyons, for the record is someone who has frequently spoken about her own journey with mental illness. The next day, If Gathering founder Jenny Allen responded, clarifying that the ministry supports counseling and medication and doesn't think mental illness is sinful. The incidents at If occurred several days after John Piper's Desiring God ministry tweeted, quote, We will find mental health when we stop staring in the mirror and fix our eyes on the strength and beauty of God. Unquote. Nearly 500 people responded to the tweet saying that the message implied that counselors and medication were unnecessary to cure mental illness. Today on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss how mental illness is and is not connected to sinfulness and how faith and mental health can be understood together. So before we get into this discussion, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And speaking of controversies and hot-button topics, our March issue, which will be coming in the mail pretty soon, in the next couple of days, for those of you who are subscribers, potentially has one of our most hot-button and loaded topics um, that we've put on the cover story in some time. It's all about surrogacy. So if you would like to read that article, again, it's our cover story with reporting by my colleague Kate Shelnut, you can get a copy of that magazine. It's at orderct.com slash listen. OrderCT.com slash quick to listen. And it'll be on the website coming up, but if you'd like to read it either online or in print, you're going to have to get a copy yourself. And I think it's going to be something really interesting and hopefully open up a larger discussion um, in the Christian world about these particular issues. So I'm really excited that this particular piece is coming out. Get it at orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Mark, as you know, we often give gut checks about these particular topics current events issues as they are um, and tell people how they make us feel. I know there's a couple issues here, but I think they hint on the same thing. So did you have a gut reaction to these stories?
2: Well, I think my uh, 65 years of experience come into play here because I'm just puzzled by the reaction of some Christians, to the notion that mental illness might have to be dealt with in ways other than that are purely spiritual. I mean, I went to Fuller Theological Seminary back in the 1970s. Their school of psychology has been in business since the 1960s, and it's been perfectly understood that there is a category of mental and psychological illness that needs to be dealt with with the best scientific counseling resources we have. I mean, prayer, no doubt, uh, plays can play a huge and very important role, but to make it all spiritual, I just I just don't understand why people are still thinking that. I'm just completely puzzled. And I'll be interested in hearing Amy's perspective on that. Why are we talking about it like this when, for at least 50 years, a large segment of even the evangelical world has understood that psychological mental illness is a very complex thing that may, may take a certain amount of prayer, but it also might take some other things as well. So anyway, that was my reaction.
1: Well, sometimes, Mark, as you know, you and I both have reactions to the reaction. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was actually where my reaction was, where it's really fascinating to see which particular issues really just provoke visceral reactions from people still. It really seems like mental health is one of those where people feel very strongly about these types of things both of these controversies that we're discussing here um, were widely tweeted about with a lot of people really pushing back strongly, many people sharing their own stories about how they themselves have needed medication in this instance. And it's interesting just to kind of hear these people, these perspectives be given voice to. I mean, even the fact that someone like Rebecca Lyons, who has been really public about talking mental illness herself, that's been helpful for myself in terms of how to think of it about this more in a Christian context. And I'm glad that you're on the show to kind of give longer perspective. But ever since I remember Rick um, and Kay Warren's son committed suicide, I remember at least mental health taking on more of a prominence in the church. But that may just be a lot of recent history in my short life.
2: I agree that it has risen to prominence in the last decade or so, uh, and it's very controversial in a lot of ways. So what interests me is why the rise of interest and why the rise in controversy, and I'm hoping Amy will help us understand that.
1: Yes, indeed. All right, Amy, let's back up a little bit from these particular controversies and start with some of the ideas underneath what was being discussed here. Can you tell us a little bit about where the idea that there might be a connection between spirituality, sin, and mental illness came about? Where's that from?
3: Yeah, there are actually a a few things to consider when you think about the origins of this. Um, The most interesting to me is that this idea originally is really not a Christian idea. It's not really a religious idea. It really has roots in the ancient pagan world. If you look at uh, Greek and Roman culture, the way they responded to mental illness was they really believed that people who had a mental illness were inhabited by evil spirits. And they literally kept their physical distance from people because they were afraid that if they got too close, those spirits would fly out of the people with the mental illness and, and infect them. So the people with mental illness were shunned and, you know, literally just people would keep their distance. So it's, it's really, it's not originally, you know, a Christian idea or even a religious idea. It's, it's really rooted kind of in superstition and in a misunderstanding of what mental illness is. But there are Christian roots here, too. Um, and, and actually, if you look at a bit of what underlies this idea, I think there's there's a bit of Gnosticism here, you know, with the idea that the spiritual is good and real and the physical is not, and, and really de-emphasizing our physical selves in favor of our spiritual selves and elevating the spirit and focusing just on that. But more recently, there I think there are roots in the mid-20th century as well and maybe even the early 20th century, with the rise of modern psychiatry and psychology, you can see a bit of a backlash happening throughout the 20th century as those disciplines grew in influence and in maturity. And they were, um, especially in the early 20th century, they were very secular pursuits. You know, if you look at Freud, who obviously is kind of the father of modern psychiatry, very influential, you know, his view was if that mental illness... You know if you were a religious person, you had a mental illness basically you know the mental ill- the religion itself and spirituality were forms of neurosis so there were many people who i think responded to that by sort of distancing themselves from psychiatry and psychology and thinking those are anti god they're anti religion they're anti faith therefore we we don't want to have anything to do with them and in the you know, the mid to late 20th century, you had the rise of newtetic counseling, um, which is now generally called biblical counseling, kind of a, a Christian approach to counseling that that really emphasizes the Bible as the only source of truth and healing and kind of rejects the influence of psychology and psychiatry. I think there's partly, you know, that's partly rooted in a backlash against the, the secularism that people saw in psychology and psychiatry back then.
2: Let's talk about the New Testament, the way it understands these things, because a lot of people assume that the inc- incidences of a demon possession in the New Testament would be better described today as instances of mental illness. Uh, I mean, how do you understand the difference between spiritual oppression we see described in the New Testament and the mental illness you're talking about?
3: Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I, I know that, that that's a very common view, and it's I think it's certainly possible. That at least some of the instances described as demon possession in the Bible may have been mental illness, but we don't really know that. Um, You know, and I think it's, there are many people who would say at least one or two of those instances were perhaps cases of epilepsy you know or other seizure disorders. So we're making an assumption there, you know, by saying oh that's mental illness. But also I do think it's possible that what is described there in the New Testament is actually just actually what's described, you know, that it's it's demon possession, which is different from mental a mental disorder, but for many people in fact um, the research that I did when I was writing my book, Troubled Minds, found that about 20% of church leaders—and this was these were people who were surveyed through Leadership Journal, now called C.T. Pastors, and other publications published by Christianity Today—about um, 20% of them said that they believed that mental illness is caused by demon possession. And I think this is a, a very—we could spend a lot of time talking about this—this this is a very harmful belief— um to make the assumption that 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 connection is always present um i think certainly you know there's a lot we don't understand about demon possession we obviously it's it's a spiritual part of the spiritual the supernatural realm we don't see clearly in that realm but you know to think that they would be the same thing is one thing to think they might sometimes look similar is another you know, for a for someone who hits under the de- influence of a demon may behave in ways that are similar to, for example, someone with schizophrenia. That doesn't mean that the same thing is at the root of those problems. So
2: that's a good insight. Actually, coming at that from a completely different perspective was Scott Peck, who wrote a bestseller book called uh, *The Road Less Travel*. He was a very well-known uh, psychoanalyst back in the 70s, I guess. He was known for his psychoanalysis. He came out with a book a few uh, decade or so later called People of the Lie, which he discovered in his practice of dealing with people with various forms of mental illness, that in some cases he, he had to make the decision, shocking to himself, that there was something spiritual going on. He actually called it demon possession. But he basically made the same point you're making from the opposite point of view. Those are really two different things, and we need to keep them separate.
1: Amy, do you know when people began to kind of conflate the two? Well,
3: again, you know, I'd say this is originally, looking back, really a pagan idea. You know, it's not something that originated... Even in biblical times, it was present. Before that, the idea that if you have a mental illness, it means you're possessed by an evil spirit or a demon. But my guess is that this has probably always been present in Christianity. You know this view because it's a very old idea, and because we've always had. You know, we still have a lot of. of, There's a lot we don't know about how our brains work. And if you look at, you know, a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, the whole the brain was was completely mysterious. You know, so. People do invent explanations for things they don't understand. And so my guess is that this belief has probably always been present to some degree. But this was not the prevailing response to mental illness within the early Christian church. You know, there was no—people weren't sitting around debating about whether, in general, whether they should cast demons out of someone who exhibited signs of mental illness or whether that person deserved their, their compassion or their treatment. They just treated them. They just helped them you know the christians were the were the people who who created the first hospitals and in those early hospitals they did not make a distinction between different forms of illness if you had something that was incapacitating you or affecting your health whether it was what we would now qualify as a mental illness or, you know, another form of illness, you, you were welcome and they would take care of you. There wasn't a lot they could do to cure you, but they would care for you um, with compassion.
1: Amy, what are the ways that Christians should understand the connection between Christianity and mental health? it really starts with, and and this is
3: oversimplifying it a bit, but I think we can start with approaching it the way we do any other form of illness. Now, there are some things that are unique about mental illness, um, but it's not as unique as we often make it seem. There are a lot of ways that it's very similar to other forms of illness, and when we think about it theologically, that is very much the case, you know? We've if you think about um, our theology of suffering, you know, thinking through why do we suffer? What is our response to suffering? How should we approach suffering people? The conclusions that we would come to in Orthodox Christian faith really are the same as the ones that we, sh- we should come to when it comes to mental illness as any other form of illness. You know, we can respond with compassion. We can respond with care. Um, we can recognize that our faith does have some answers here. You know, we don't have to be silent on the struggles around mental health problems any more than around the struggles related to Other forms of injury or disease. We have, you know, a a robust theology that can provide answers to why we experience these things, and that can provide hope for people. And I think it's also important for us to recognize there's a lot of opportunity here for Christian churches when it comes to um, doing ministry to people. You know, when people historically, when people in the U.S. seek help for a mental health problem. Um, the number one place they go is to a member of the clergy. That's about 25% of people. 16% go to psychiatrists, 16% go to general medical doctors. The numbers go down from there. So, you know, there are various reasons for that. I think one is, is access. Um, but people have historically seen our churches as the, the number one resource they'll go to when they need help for a mental health problem. And most churches don't recognize that that's happening. So if we just start there and recognize, okay, we are a a resource for people. We are, to some degree, a triage center for mental health problems. Maybe we ought to be equipped, um, have a better understanding of mental health problems and of how we can respond. And certainly we can respond with the same kind of compassion and care that we do to other forms of illness, whether we really understand it or not.
2: I think one um, insight that we've learned in the last few decades is that a certain amount of mental illness is is a physical illness. That is to say, it's a chemical imbalance. There's something physically going on in the brain that's causing the person to be disturbed. Now, this is controversial in and of itself in many cases, but I think if we can see that some forms of mental illness, the fact that they can be treated so effectively with certain drugs suggest that there is a physical dimension to them. And we might want to think about them the same way we do. We think about people having the flu, for example.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in fact, you know, we now have the technology that, that enables us to begin to see what mental illness looks like in the brain. So there absolutely is a physical component to much mental illness. And we can we can start to see this is what a healthy brain looks like. This is what a brain with depression looks like, or this is what a brain with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia looks like, and I think as technology advances and we develop further our ability to see those differences, I'm hoping that will help to dispel some of the myths and misunderstandings around mental illness because there you know there really is we we often have this idea that the brain is somehow or our minds are somehow you know completely separate from our bodies our brains are a physical organ of our bodies they are in fact they're the most complex organ in our bodies and they can be injured they can be diseased they can be you know disordered just like any other organ in our bodies so there's there's much that's mysterious about how the brain works but when we just recognize that you know that that these are rooted in dysfunction within this physical organ of our bodies that in itself can dis- dispel some of that sense of mystery
1: i'm wondering if we could go even maybe a little bit deeper scientifically um, as well right now. You know, how long have we even kind of had terms and words to describe the various types of mental illness that are out there?
3: I'm not sure that I can answer that e- um easily off the top of my head, but I will say these the, it continues to evolve. You know, our language around mental illness continues to to evolve. And so if you look back at say even the, you know, the 1970s, the 1980s, we had a good understanding of mental illness as a phenomenon and of the idea that there are different types of disorder and disease, but some of the categories that people used are no no longer even in use now. Things like multiple personality disorder, um, you know, many practitioners would say that's not it's not even really a real disorder. Um, it's really you know schizophrenia, or there are some categories of illness that people didn't weren't even aware of then. You know, we have manic depressive disorder that was the name of it back then which is now called bipolar disorder you know we have we are evolving our understanding and our language evolves with it there are many people now who suspect researchers who suspect depression and anxiety may not even be two separate disorders <laughs> anxiety disorders and depression might actually be the same disorder because they're so closely linked you know so there it's this is continuing to unfold and so while we have had categories and language around this for a while uh, you know where we are going to be 10, 20, 30 years from now is probably going to be a very different place from where we are now in terms of our understanding, especially because there is so much happening within neuroscience and understanding the structure of the brain and the way our brains work and in genetic science as well, you know, and better understanding our DNA and what's present in our DNA versus what forms as a result of our environment and our experiences.
1: That's really good. And it it definitely points to the fact that There is still a lot that we do not know. Are there any big things that you would just say, like, here are the big places where we're still just in the dark?
3: Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of um, mystery still around this idea of genetics, because most forms of mental illness, not all of them, but I think most of them, there is a suspicion that there is some level of genetic element. There's some level of heredity, but they don't they still don't know for most forms, they don't know how how much genetics influence your development of that disease. They don't know what are all the factors that will cause a disease to develop. So, you know, if, if I have a predisposition to schizophrenia and you have a predisposition to schizophrenia, well, we're understanding some of the things that might cause me to develop that disorder and might mean that you never do. But we don't understand all of those things. So there's there's a lot that, that still needs to be figured out there. And the brain itself is such a complex organ, so difficult to study that there's, I mean, every day if you watch the headlines, you'll see some new neuroscience-related discovery or news. I mean, it's really happening very rapidly, but there's still so much about the brain that we don't understand. And so as they, you know, as scientists determine more and more about how our brains function, how our brains are structured. It really sheds new light on um, all of our responses to mental illness, whether it's better understanding how our lifestyle influences our mental health, better understanding how injuries to the brain can change our behavior and our emotions, understanding um, how therapeutic techniques are helpful, and understanding medications. You know, why there are some medications that psychiatrists will prescribe for people that they still don't understand exactly why they work or how they work. They just know they do work, you know, and and maybe it's even a medication that wasn't even developed for this purpose, but has kind of evolved into usage for as a mental health Medication. So, yeah, there's a lot still to be figured out, and I think a lot of it is rooted in that I, that understanding of how our brains work and how our brains are are structured. Let me go back
2: to some of the uh, concerns that some Christians have. At least 20%, maybe I don't know. It's good that 80% don't feel that way, but 20% do. There you go. <laughs> Where they're worried that somehow if we address mental illness as a purely um, function of the brain and the body, we've now removed another area of the Christian life from meaningful interaction with our lives. In other words, we don't really need the Christian life. We don't need Jesus. We don't need the Holy Spirit to help us deal with these things because now we understand it's like medicine. You just take certain medicine and you can get better. You don't need Jesus to have good mental health. That's the fear anyway. Now, you're a very devout Christian who obviously doesn't believe that, so how would you respond to a person who feels that?
3: Yeah, it's I think it's an interesting point of view. It's very um, I I agree with you that that fear is present for many people. And I think it's probably more than 20 percent, you know, who have that fear. And yet it's very much an oversimplification of matters. In fact, the funny thing is, if you look at psychology and psychiatry, the development over the last few decades of Um, the legitimacy of religious activity and of um, just faith and belief is pretty striking. So that most schools of psychology, most practitioners um, really embrace the importance of tending to our spirits. Now, they they may not embrace a Christian worldview, you know, or Christian belief, but they certainly would be um, in favor of people believing and acting and you know, in accordance with their belief and honoring their belief. And study after study has shown that religious activity, regularly attending services, holding to the tenets of uh, religious belief and the lifestyle that comes with that are crucial components of maintaining mental health. Those things can all be helpful in helping people even heal and recover and maintain health who live with a mental health disorder. Now, those things themselves are That doesn't mean they're enough to cure someone with mental health or that that's enough. If you, you know, if you really have a brain disorder and that needs to be treated as a physical disorder, you know, just praying and just going to church isn't going to substitute for that, but it certainly will help. It will help support that recovery. So acknowledging that there's a medical component here and that people need medically based and scientifically sound treatment does not mean that they don't need spiritual care. That they don't need you know to have a connection with God to honor that connection on a regular basis, they do we all do, so you know there's there's a there's no one dimensional being here. We are multi-dimensional beings, and we have to live that way if we try to live as one dimensional beings, ultimately we will uh, destroy ourselves, you know we we can't function that way. So we have to honor all the different elements that are present in the way God has made us. And that's really the healthiest way to live. So, you know, there's no um, dismissal of the need for acknowledging our spiritual, our need for spiritual care and our, and our need for God.
2: So uh, Freud is rolling over in his grave now with the new insights.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And actually, you know, they're there are studies that have shown that basically what you believe—there are a couple of books that are out there on this, actually, and one of them is written by Timothy Jennings. It's um, published by University Press. Basically, it, these books that and these studies that have shown that what you believe about God has a powerful impact on the way your brain functions. And then the way your brain functions, of course, has a powerful impact on your behavior. And if you believe God is good— and you believe God cares for you, and that God wants you to be, you know, caring for other people, it will have a very, very healthy effect on your brain, and it will produce healthy behavior. If you believe God is out to get you, you know, or or God is judgmental, and he's waiting, you know, to, uh, to judge you, or if you believe that he wants you to act as a judge on the world around you, that actually has a very detrimental impact on your brain and ultimately on your behavior. So it's actually really fascinating to see even how um, the the specific attitude that we have toward God has an impact on our mental health, on the structure of our brains, and, and on our behavior. So yeah, we certainly, we've all been there, you know, in within Christian communities that maybe didn't have the, the healthiest and most accurate belief system about God himself, and it has an impact on our behavior.
2: And the book, by the way, is The God-Shaped Brain, How Changing Your View of God Transforms Your Life.
3: Yes, thank you.
0: This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like Are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com.
1: So another thing that had happened at the IF Gathering conference last week was that Australian preacher Christine Kane had made a comment where she referred to something as schizophrenic and this thing that she characterized as that was not a person who was suffering from that mental illness, and so there were some that took offense to her language and characterization. You know, Amy, I've heard a decent amount of people trying to maybe push back against some of the ways that we use the terminology of mental health to characterize other things that are not that. I'm curious what you make about all of that and how language plays a role in this discussion.
3: Like in any other realm of life, our language, of course, both reflects and influences the way we think um, and the way we relate to other people. And I think it is important to recognize mo- what most people will say. You know, who are sensitive to this issue is that our language ought to be people first. So when we describe a person who has a mental illness say schizophrenia you know that we don't say oh there's a schizophrenic but we say you know this is a person with schizophrenia and and the difference really is that we're just we're acknowledging first of all that this is a person and that they are they there's more to them than their disease Otherwise, you know, basically, if you if you label someone as a schizophrenic, you're you're sort of suggesting that's the only thing that matters about them. Then when we use we use those words or that language to describe something, you know, that's not a person, it really can be very offensive to to people. Um, And it, again, sort of has the impact of dismissing that These we're talking about people here. We're talking about real medical conditions. So, you know, it's it's funny because it's something that happens all the time um, around mental health language that we really don't we don't use other forms of illness in that same way. So, for example, you know, we see something that we don't like and we'd say, and that is diabetic, <laughs> you know or i just feel really um i just feel really like my appendix is bursting right now you know i mean it it just it sounds bizarre right but people will do that all the time you know i feel bipolar or i feel like i just have ocd and i think the reason it bothers people is mostly because it it just tends to dismiss the reality and the seriousness of these conditions and treat them as almost mythical you know or made up Um, conditions or things that are happening, they're so fringe, such fringe experiences that nobody who's, you know, who's actually been affected by them would ever be in this room with us right now, you know, even though, of course, they are, you know, we're talking about roughly 20% of the population who's affected by a mental health problem in, in any given year And about 50 percent of the population over the course of a lifetime who will experience some kind of mental health problem. So, of course, they're always in the same room with everyone else. And it's just a matter of basic respect often to um, to use the to use the people first language and then to, you know, to use these these medical terms the same way that we would use other medical terms.
2: Let me just stand in for the people who might end up, I think that's a really good analogy, by the way, between what we normally consider as physical illness and mental illness terms. It's really kind of funny, actually. (laughs) But I do think the, uh, the descriptive language of mental illness is very powerful. And we identify, the reason why we tend to use it, in some situations, it does really, it nails something that's going on inside of us. So if I'm having a day in which I'm just, my emotions are just going all over the place, up and down, I'm very likely to say, boy, I'm feeling like, I'm feeling bipolar today. And by that, I don't mean that I have a serious mental illness. It's just a, it's a fantastic way of describing what's going on inside me. But that doesn't take away from the fact that if in fact, I'm in a room with someone who in fact, is experiencing that, I might want to not use that expression. I might want to use that expression only with trusted friends and family who I know know will not be offended. But on the other hand, the language of psychology does have this power to uh, describe things that are going on inside us that's much more inclusive than uh, many other forms of language.
3: Yeah, it's a good point. And especially if you compare it to some of the other illness words or disease words that tend to be Latin terms or... (laughs) Greek, you know, that aren't necessarily all that descriptive of the experience itself, where mental health um, diagnoses often are more descriptive of the experience itself.
1: I'd like to make this personal for a bit. I'm sure that many of our listeners have loved ones who deal with mental illness. Just wondering if you have any words of advice or encouragement for them, Amy?
3: Yeah. um, Well, first of all, you know, I want to acknowledge that I am one of those people too. I have, you know, my mom
1: lives with schizophrenia. So
3: obviously mental illness and serious severe mental illness has had a profound impact on my life and my family's life. And so I do understand what a difficult place um, it can be to love someone with mental illness and how frustrating at times that experience can be because we, you know, we see, people we love and we want to help them and we don't always know how to help them and we we want them to get help and they aren't always willing to do that. So it can be a very difficult place to be. We also have a mental health care system that um, is broken, by the way, and that often acts as an obstacle to care rather than helping people receive what they need. So I think really the first of all, the most important thing is to, if you're in that position, um, to get some support for yourself. And to recognize how important your own health is, not only for you, but for your loved one as well, because you are you're never going to be in your best position to help and support them if you are not healthy yourself or if you are, you know, limping along. Please get some support for yourself. Work on your own health. Maybe see a counselor if you can find a support group. There are some a couple of great Christian support group programs out there that you can can look and see if you can find one in your area. One is um, called Fresh Hope for Mental Health. The other one is Mental Health Grace Alliance. Um, so that's a great place to start. I think it's also important to recognize that um, our own our our acceptance of our loved ones and our presence with them can be very powerful. So even if they're not responding, you know, the way we want them to, maybe they're not seeking the care they need, or they don't seem to appreciate, you know, what we're doing for them. It is powerful for us to be accepting and present with them, to to walk the journey with them. And it's important to recognize that we may be in this for the long haul. You know, mental illness by its very nature is often cyclical. um, It's often a lifelong condition. That's not always the case, but that's often the issue. And so we may be in it for a long time. And it's, it's not like we can expect the issue to just resolve itself quickly in most cases. Um, But I also want to mention that it's it's okay to, you know, to set boundaries with people who have mental illness, you know, to, to choose a healthy way of living and being with them. You don't have to get on the roller coaster, and you don't have to accept anyone else's version of reality. You know, you can stick to what you know to be true. And care for yourself and set and stick to those boundaries as well.
1: Do you have anything for any listeners who themselves may suffer from mental illness as well? Yeah,
3: you know, I guess I would I would echo what I just said just a little bit from a different perspective and that is, you know, if you if you have a mental illness, it's never just about you if, when it comes to receiving treatment or making the lifestyle choices that you need to make to care for yourself it's always about more than just you. Your your illness affects other people, and the people who love you need you to be at your best. So please do pursue the help you need. And I would also just assure you that, you know, Romans 8 assures us that nothing can separate us from God's love. And people who are walking through a mental health challenge often feel as if that's the very thing that has happened to them, that something has come between them and God's love. They are no longer loved. They're no longer maybe noticed by God. Um, or maybe that God is even punishing them or afflicting them with this problem because somehow they haven't gotten it right. And I just want to assure you that that's, that's not true. That's never true. If you know the power of um, Satan and, and death itself is not enough to separate us from the love of Christ, Either is mental illness. Your illness did not surprise God. This is not, you know, thrown off His plans off track for you. He has always known what you would walk through, and He has been there before you, and your life continues to have value and continues to have purpose, and there's a lot of hope for you. Um, so I, I encourage people to choose that hope and to take the steps they need to care for themselves and to to trust that um, God really does have a value and a purpose in mind for you.
1: Thanks so much, Amy. I appreciate that. For anyone who might have feedback for us, you can leave that on Twitter. We're on Twitter at ctpodcasts. And thank you again, Amy, for giving us some good food for thought there. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone here shares something that is bringing them joy this week. Mark, would you like to go?
2: Well, this brought me joy last week, actually. I went to Cancun with my wife and two of my children and their families. uh, And it was an all-expense-paid trip, meaning not only the hotel, but all the meals. And we got a significant discount on uh, airlines because of... uh, travel package we have with Southwest. So even though I had the flu there and I had to just lay around, I was planning to lay around anyway and just read anyway. But to do it on a beach with white sand and turquoise water was delightful and watch my grandkids play in the water. Uh, It was just a wonderful, wonderful week. And along those lines, I just want to, you know, normally at this point, you ask me, where can people reach me? Well, I'm going to skip me this week. And I'm going to encourage listeners who are interested in uh, this sort of thing, that is to say, uh, either they're uh, adoptive parents, uh, they've, they've adopted children from overseas, or they want to re- go overseas for vacation or for some mission work. My daughter Katie is, a, is one of these credit card mavens where she has figured out how to take advantage of various and sundry deals that you can, in fact, take these sort of trips essentially for free. She and her husband were able to pick up her uh, adoptive Philippine son. A trip that cost that would have normally cost them over four thousand. They were able to do it more or less for free. Anyway, she started a website called Katie's Travel Tricks. T R I C K S. Katie's Travel Tricks that you might want to check out. And if you have a need in these areas, you can contact her or read her website. And she she's created it for the express pur- purpose of helping, especially adoptive families. But you can see it's for anyone who wants to figure out how to travel in a way that's much more economical.
1: Awesome. Thank you for sharing
3: that, Mark. Amy, do you want to go? The big biggest thing that's brought me joy this week has been the release of a new book. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it just launched yesterday. So I'm excited about that. And it's been really fun, especially to get some great feedback on people who've been reading it. And, um, you know, as an author, putting putting something basically from your heart out there and waiting for people to react to it is can be a very risky proposition. So it feels great to be getting some some good feedback and to have it out there in the world and doing okay. <laughs>
1: Tell us about your book and where people can get it.
3: Um, it's called Blessed are the Unsatisfied, Finding Spiritual Freedom in an Imperfect World. You know, it's really about the the blessings that come with acknowledging the truth that we are not satisfied people, that we won't be satisfied people in this life, and kind of giving up that chase um and when we do that we find that God blesses us in our in our unsatisfied conditions. So it is available really wherever you buy books it's on Amazon, you can get it from the publisher University Press, you can find it on my website um which is amysimpson.com and yeah, I hope people will will give it a read.
2: It's especially relevant in light of the first few verses of the uh, sermon on the mount because it's essentially the message of Jesus there as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Do you have a website or are you on social media? Yeah, my website
3: is amysimpson.com. And I'm on, you can find me too on Facebook. Um, I have an author page there. Um, I'm on Twitter, um, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram. Yeah, (laughs) I'm all over. (laughs) All of them.
1: Cool. All right. My precious moment is not surprising to anyone who listened to last week's podcast. It's just the Olympics and specifically... Getting to watch the Olympics with other people. I do not have a TV, so that means that if I'm watching the Olympics, I'm probably at somebody's house. And I've had a great time at my neighbor's house the past couple of nights, and before that, I was at some other friend's house. Not to mention the fact that it just does, feels like a giant social thing to talk about with other people and to collectively be excited about, which is what I really, really love about sports in general. Yeah, um, it was really great seeing Chloe Kim win, if not because she had an Asian dad. And it's been fun seeing all the commentary from other Asian Americans who are really appreciating all the Asian Americans who are in this Olympics and talking about the parents and what they can relate to from the parents that are there and feeling a part of those games in a way that I don't always feel a part of the games. Um, so I have really enjoyed the Olympics in many ways, and I'm excited that's going to last 10 more days as well. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us this week on Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today, and thank you to everyone who has. Again, we're at orderct.com slash quick to listen, especially if you want to read that cover story on Surgacy. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark, and it's available on Apple Podcasts, which is where we are delighted um, if you by chance decide to leave a review. Thank you to everyone who's done that, because as you know, that really helps us out a lot. Um, this podcast is also available basically wherever you want to get your podcast, even if it's not on Apple Podcasts. We will see you all next week.